Hello and welcome to Embodied Astrology. My name is Renee Sills. I'm a consulting astrologer, astrology teacher, and somatic educator. I'm interested in the ways astrology helps expand conversations around embodiment, art, process, politics, and more. In this special episode, I'll be talking with Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Michelle is an activist, social justice warrior, author, anti-racism consultant and trainer, intuitive healer, and yoga teacher and practitioner. She's also the author of Skill in Action and Finding Refuge, two books that weave together mindfulness and spirituality with the practical work of dismantling racism and participating in creating more equitable and just relationships and realities. I'm releasing this episode on April 17th, 2022. It's the day after a full moon in Libra, which was trine with Saturn in Aquarius and square to Pluto in Capricorn. Libra is a sign that is often associated with the word justice. It asks for careful consideration, relational tending, peace building, and mindful negotiations that assist and support individuals to be accountable within their relationships. Trying with Saturn in Aquarius, this full moon asks us to labor together with discipline, integrity, and commitment to our shared humanity. Squared to Pluto, this full moon also challenges us to confront the shadows of history, the ways violence and trauma have shaped our world and lives, and the ways we've internalized these violences and perpetuate them so that we can attend to the messy, challenging, necessary, and beautiful work of transformation. I am so grateful to Michelle for her profound and timely guidance, the way she holds all of these themes within her work, and the spaces she creates for us to dive deeper into our personal practices, find refuge, and bring skill into our actions. In this episode, we'll talk about astrology and her chart a bit, of course. We're also going to talk about the work of maintaining connections between our spiritual selves and our human bodies. And Michelle will share from her experience as an energy worker and a healer, an intuitive, a witch, an activist and guide around how to anchor in our heart's wisdom in times of stress and overwhelm, how to build resilience and connection in relational spaces, and how to navigate and attend to the wounds and dislocation of white supremacy culture. For more information on Michelle or to find out about her books, events, or other upcoming offerings, check the show notes or go to michellecjohnson.com. Welcome back to Embodied Astrology. You were the first guest ever on this podcast. Um, I think that was like three years ago now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In your house. In In my house. You fed me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I had been thinking about starting um, to do guest episodes for a while. And then um, when Lisa May and I combined forces to support your workshop here, it Mm -hmm. felt like a really opportune moment. And um, I want to thank you for being that, you know, initiator and catalyzer for for this because it's turned into... um, a really generative space and also for coming back. It's, it's been wonderful to watch your work and follow along with you the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for um, having me back and responding to the, the request and the call um, and for having me on the show as a guest in the first place. So thank and for, for the show, for the work. I mean, it feels bigger than a show. It feels like a, you know, practice and work and, Um, yeah energy and so thank you for for that oh my gosh yeah it was um 
interesting to start to learn about you last time, uh, to learn about your practice as an intuitive. And mm -hmm. do you consider yourself a witch or do you have your own word? You know, um, sometimes magic? I use witch. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, I use different, different words. <laughs> Magical person. <laughs> yeah. Sorcerer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was cool to start to get to know you that way because I had known you before through the work of you, through your work with activism and yoga, and then also then getting to work with your chart and, um, you're a Leo, I'm a Leo too, <laughs> and felt like a lot of kinship in, in the sense of the way that you draw upon many different spaces in your work. And, um, I really admire how you bring them all together and in going through finding refuge, it, it feels like, um, a new synthesis for you. Like, like a lot of, of new pieces are starting to come together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was wondering, uh, finding refuge came out this year in 2021 yes. and yeah, and it explores, um, grief and, and your, your personal experiences with grief, but also the collective grief and, mm -hmm. uh, the book offers heart work and care practices for holding and healing grief. Um, but then your first book, Skill in Action, was published about three or three and a half years ago in 2017, yeah. Yeah. Um, or I guess four years ago, I, that's now. Um, and that book was um, kind of aimed at radicalizing yoga practitioners and bringing in this kind of really essential piece of social consciousness and tools of social justice uh, to help practitioners connect with some of the more foundational or underlying precepts of yoga philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, um, if you can speak to the relationship between these two books and the journey that you've been on between them and what it, you know, if you feel that skill in action in your first foray into publishing and, and kind of archiving a lot of your thoughts and process into a book form opened for you that uh, has brought you into this, into this work with grief? Yeah, this is a big question. Um, I know skill in action needed to come before finding refuge. That it makes sense to me, the sequencing of it all. And, and I think they're similar in a lot of ways, not just in structure with the practices or, or my stories, but also the themes, right? Skill in action is, is really about um, how we create more liberatory spaces and questions we might ask to um, be more inclusive and to notice how exclusive the industry wellness and yoga have been historically in the West. Um, and, and the pain and grief that comes along with one's wellness not being prioritized because of the identities they embody. And so that feels like a, a direct link to finding refuge because so many of the themes about the grief we're experiencing as a collective um, relate to how we're not able to be free and, and systems that are in place and in the way of our freedom, they're in place to deny us liberation and they're um, set up not to care for for many of us based on our identity. So that feels like a, okay, this, a thread um, between the two, two books and, and just experiences because they feel like, I mean, they're, they're about my life, right? So it feels like, yes, it's in physical form as a book and 
they're things I've experienced, you know, stories I've, I've lived through. Um, and I, I also think at some point there was an, it was after Skill and Action came out, there was a shift for me when I started to talk about grief more. And I would say it was probably about three years ago. So it was shortly after Skill of Action came out. And it may have been because I was in so many spaces, wellness and yoga spaces and community spaces. And we were talking about the content in Skill of Action and people felt deep grief about how they were implicated in the system of white supremacy, for example, or how they've been harmed by it. And at, at one point I said, we're doing grief work. I remember saying this in a workshop, like this is what we're doing. I also think there's something about the way I hold space um, and my facilitation that invites people into showing up as they are. That's what I would like to do. That's what I strive to, to do. So I think, you know, there's, for some folks, there's more space to share emotions um, that they may not otherwise feel like they can share or to open and be vulnerable and take risks. I've seen that over and over. And a lot of that risk-taking has been around grief and heartbreak and confusion about heartbreak and am I causing more grief for people, right? All of that. Um, so I know that happened in a skill and action workshop and then finding refuge came, came after. And the, the other link between the two, when I wrote skill and action, I sat and, and wrote, and it felt like I've said this many times, a story that was waiting to come out and my ancestors definitely informed um, that story. I'm, I'm thinking about the um, the way that they couldn't move freely, right, and breathe freely, and that feels so central to skill and action in my experience of yoga and liberation. And it is so clear to me that finding refuge came from like channeled through ancestors, um, and in fact, they seeded the idea for the the work around grief, um, and then the book around around grief, my own individual storytelling of it, and, and again, the collective's experiences of loss and grieving. We're not making space to grieve. It's also about that and, and what we lose when we don't actually make space to tend our hearts. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I have your chart up right now, and um, you are a full moon baby. Leo sun and Aquarius moon and with the house system that I use, which is a Placidus system, um, it puts your moon in the eighth house, uh, which is the place of um, shared resources, but also shared feelings and where feelings become entangled and kind of entwined. And the eighth house is like a murky place where there's not an individual where we're sharing. But Aquarius is a sign, you know, of the humanitarian and this kind of um, expansive, sometimes objective or emotionally detached even space of observation where we can see patterns. Um, and I'm wondering if, if you feel this resonance in yourself of that Leo Aquarius kind of axis of incredible heartfulness and, and passion and then also skill and action that, that can come through a kind of big picture um, detachment, which I wouldn't say is like a non-feeling state, right? But you talk a lot in your book about kind of like moving, moving beyond the personal and into the transpersonal, which I think can allow for a sense of detachment and that awareness of the big picture. Um, and just a moment ago, you talked about your skill 
um, or, or capacity as a facilitator uh, to hold spaces where people can be courageous, which feels very much like an eighth house phenomena. Um, yeah, I'm wondering how you, how you feel yourself. And I think that's like a hard question maybe to ask because you're inside yourself all of the time. Um, but if you could speak a little bit to your unfolding awareness of, uh, you know, being a, a, a Leo person, however you resonate with that, and then also having an Aquarius moon, however you resonate with that. Yeah, I love when I received your email about my chart and wanting to read that and um, have that help us move through the conversation and, and deepen the conversation and connection. So I was aware that of, of being a full moon um, baby, and um, I really do feel like the way that I came into the world has everything to do with being able to step back and observe and um, being able to be with my heart and lead from my heart. And what I mean is, and you know this from skill and action that I came in, it's two pounds and three ounces and was taken away from my mom to a different hospital because there wasn't a premium unit in the hospital. I was born in 1975. Um, and I, I of course don't know what I was doing in my two pound body, but I do know I was in an incubator and people were picking me up and I was awake. I know that. Um, and that continued this theme of being awake after my mother took me home. I was in the hospital for a month. She took me home. She said I slept for two months and then I was awake. And she mm. said she would like come into my room. She'd be crawling on her knees to like get the crib. And I'd just be standing there looking at her or eyes wide open. And so I feel like you know, how I came in and the overstimulation of like a hospital in a two pound body without people I was connected to biologically or caretakers around me other than people who worked in the hospital that I, I do think that's connected to my ability to observe and sort of step back and, and watch because I think my nervous system is sort of configured in that way. I mean, that was what I was what I was doing, I think, in my two-pound, three-ounce body. I was watching. I was probably wondering what was going on. And I was missing that connection with my mom. I mean, it's nine days is a long time to be away from, from a, a person who's just birthed you, right? Absolutely. In the world. So I, I do think it has to do with that and my nervous system. And um, the Leo Aquarius, I'm, I'm really glad that I have both because, because um, I mean, I feel like the Leo part of me is, is the people think I'm an extrovert. I'm actually not an extrovert, but people see that, right. And think that, and the warmth and generosity, and I'm sure I can be in my ego too. Um, and I'm really um, glad I can, I can step back. I mean, I have times where I say I'm not attached to this. Like, I'll just say out loud, like I'm not attached. I'm just saying this thing to you. And that feels very Aquarian to me. I'm also partnered with an Aquarius. So I see that mirror, um, who's a Leo rising. So I see that mirror <laughs> back at me, which is such an interesting, um, experience with him. <laughs> and yeah, it resonates deeply. And I'm, I think it has everything to do with, I was a social worker for a long time. I'm doing intuitive healing work. I'm talking about grief, not just my own grief, but the world's grief. You know, it's, I feel like the, the, I don't know if it's a balance, but I think both show up in what I've mm -hmm. created as my work and how I practice and how I relate with others. So it does, um, what you said about it really does 
connect with my experience and resonate deeply. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that uh, consciousness that you have of how you were forming your nervous system in those first couple of days of your life. And um, when I imagine, you know, nine days for a newborn before you have any concept of time. <laughs> and, and you know what what happens in the nervous system there um and then in your chart you have um an aspect pattern that sometimes gets called a mystic rectangle or like a, mm -hmm. a magic rectangle um which is basically two oppositions that are both connected to each other through trines and sextiles and one of the oppositions is the sun moon opposition of of the full moon um and then you also have uh, somewhat of a generational aspect and opposition between uh, Uranus at the last degree of Libra um, opposing Jupiter and Chiron, which are conjunct in Aries. And Aries is the sign of the self, um, but I think even before the ego exists, right? So uh, as a self, there has to be an impulse to exist, you know, and that kind of fire of life and determination to survive. Uh, is very much Aries energy. And um, Jupiter and Chiron are together in your chart. They're both retrograde. And to me, this is a symbol of, um, first of all, a, a profound healer and teacher energy mm -hmm. that the symbol of Chiron is often described as a healing journey or a healing crisis. And Jupiter often gets represented as a, as a teacher um, and, a, and a profound teacher, a spiritual teacher. Um, and they're together in this sign of um, real fortitude <laughs> around um, survival and existence, opposite to a symbol that uh, describes awakening in a in a sign, Libra, um, that is about relationship. And so thinking about your birth story uh, with the moon in the eighth house, this kind of near-death experience, um, a severing, uh, an isolation, and then a patterning in your nervous system um, that has allowed you to detach in a certain way and observe, um, that, that is also part of a pattern of awakening to survival, I think, and to the patterning mm -hmm. of survival, um, and then what that patterning can manifest as in relationships. Um, can you, can you talk about what it feels like to be in your process, which my assumption as an astrologer looking at your chart is that you have some kind of rapid synthesis process where you might experience something personally and then fairly immediately relate it to the transpersonal. I see you nodding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can, can you talk about what that feels like in your being to be in this kind of constant space of personal, transpersonal awareness? Yeah, um, it, this makes me think of, of a friend said, you take, um, you're like, you take things from the spiritual world and bring them into the material world. It's making me think about that. Like I'm, I'm listening. Um, I'm open to my ancestors and how they need to, need to guide me or want to guide me. I feel like I'm spirit and connected to spirit. And I know I'm in a body on earth and I'm here to like do something. I'm very, very clear that I'm both. And, and I don't think I've always been clear about that. I mean, that has really come in the last few years and articulating it in this way of, I am, I am a spirit and I can 
witness and observe and know that I'm bigger than my body in this moment and I'm in a body and things are happening to me and I'm doing things to other other people um, and the planet, right? And interacting in this way. And it does feel like what you said where something will happen. And I think my natural tendency now is to, to figure out or feel into how it relates to, to everything that's happening you know, that in the way that I have in finding refuge or even in skilled action in some ways, like what's happening globally, right? What haven't we grieved? What do we need to talk about as a collective from my perspective, which is just one perspective. So I do think it's that processing and maybe that has everything to do with, I mean, how I came in too, I'm I'm sure. Like, I think I had to make some quick decisions about whether or not I was going to be here. I think, I mean, after birth came out before me, I was not coming. And then they did an emergency C-section. I was, I was not coming here, you know? And so I think I did, I did have this moment of deciding I'm going to be here. And then, you know, for those nine days, I'm going to live, like I'm going to find strength or resilience. Of course, I, again, I don't know what I was doing, but I can imagine that is what I had to do in such a tiny body that was asthmatic and, had tubes everywhere, right? And um, was was not, as I said earlier, connected physically to my mom, um, but I'm sure felt her because she was quite sick after, after I came here. So um, yeah, I think I, I probably had to learn that skill of something's happening. I need to like synthesize this and then figure out what I'm gonna do. And as an, as an adult or, or growing, um, I think that translated into what's happening around me um, yeah. and needing to talk about it and wanting to talk about it because um, as a healer told me, she said, you came in to speed us up, not in a way that's like white supremacy productivity, but, but like, okay, mm-hmm. y'all stuff's on fire. We need to do something. Um, mm-hmm. And I do feel, I, I think I felt that urgency for such a long time. I certainly felt it when I was a child a young, young child, this urgency to, to move things forward. So I think that's part of the process too. Like it's the synthesizing is not just for me. It really is for us. Um, and whatever bits and pieces of what I say and write and share and, um, express energetically with someone, however that helps them or supports them or, um, helps them on their, their journey or, um, awaken something inside them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've felt that quality of decisiveness in you when I've been in workshop with you and also in reading your books. And it feels like um, you don't waste time, really, you know, that that you don't allow yourself to get pulled into um, kind of like stagnancy of unclarity. And you are very decisive. And and when something comes up in the context of the group, uh, you have a clarity that allows you to fairly easily and and simply associate whatever is arising to a bigger picture or give an individual some kind of reflection that allows them to do their own association, uh, which I really appreciated. And I'm thinking about um, the end of the first chapter in Finding Refuge. Mm -hmm. Uh, You offer a beautiful meditation on, on just being with the heart and feeling your heart. Um, and I love the meditation for its simplicity and its complexity, right? Because you're inviting people into a very simple gesture in some ways, like here's this organ mm-hmm. that is at the heart of your centrality. And then you're asking 
yourself or your readers uh, to tune in with the aspects of this experience that are highly complex and often extremely fraught because they are so interrelated. I'm wondering um, in your years of practice and teaching and applying this, maybe this particular meditation or meditations that are similar to this, uh, what are some of the things that you notice happening in the room or in the larger field when you ask people to tune in with their hearts? Mm -hmm. um, a few things. I, I think I've, I've noticed fear. Um, I've noticed not confusion. And if someone's not used to being asked about their heart, it, they're kind of like, what is this question? This person really wants to know about my heart, which is true. I do. I want to know. Um, and I want people to feel into um, their hearts and I want to feel into mine and, and allow it to move me in, in some way and change me. I've noticed an, like an exhale, right? This like, okay, finally someone's asking about my heart. Um, and, you know, for some people who've practiced being with their heart over throughout time. I think there's more ease when I ask that question. I've also guided the, the heart meditation and finding refuge and um, some, some different takes on that meditation where I've invited people to connect um, to their heart. And I've also invited them to connect to the others around them. So like there are hearts in this space, um, feel the heartbeat of the people in this space. I've also guided people to connect their heartbeat to their ancestors and beings that came before them and the future. I mean, it's deep work. It, it's like, it sounds simple as, you know, as you said to be like, okay, check in with your heart. And it's actually not, it's, I think it's profound um, because, you know, I can count the people in my two hands that have asked me about my heart, mm -hmm. like who, who lead with how's your heart. Um, which I think is such a powerful way of being with somebody, of inviting them into that space of the heart and exploring that space. And um, I mean, I think it, it connects us in a deeper way. So I've seen a lot of different tears happen for people. Grief comes up in that moment as well for, for people. Sometimes, sometimes joy will come in and sometimes I will guide it as Notice what's present in your heart. There may be tenderness or joy or confusion um, or connection, right? We, I feel many different things when I tune into my heart, depending on the, the moment, the, the day, what's happening around me or inside me. So a lot of different reactions. And I think overall gratitude for the practice. I've experienced that with people that, because they can sense I really... I really mean it, you know, I really mean like your heart. I really want to know what's happening there. Um, I really want us to deepen our connection in that way. So some of the things I've noticed in space with others when I've led this kind of meditation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you, I imagine you have, but have you brought this work into your dismantling racism training and the spaces where you facilitate maybe outside of uh, a more standard yoga or meditation space? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I have brought this into those spaces. Um, and we, we've talked about the heart or talk about the heart and also 
feelings because part of what I named in skill and action and I mean many people who do anti-oppression work talk about this the different ways systems of oppression have cut us off from our intuition from our feeling state from noticing even though feelings are flowing through and driving our behavior um, so often I'll I'll connect the heart with how we're feeling and how we're showing up in those spaces um, and you know really to get to the heart of it. I bring that in a lot um, in those spaces as well. So people can think about and feel into the despair they might be experiencing about racism and white supremacy and, and where they're implicated in that or how they're colluding with it or how we've all been harmed, harmed by it. Um, and also what we wanna do in response. Like, I think the heart is that, I mean, you're Leo, like I'm led by the heart. So I think it's this active place too. So then the meditation and the, the practice is like, yes, go inward, but it's also connected to how we show up with one another. Um, that's a central part of it as well. And I think as people practice it over time, especially in a dismantling racism workshop or, or sort of realm, then it will transform how they show up, how they see themselves, how they see others, how they operate. Um, how they treat the planet, right? I think that's my hope when I bring it into those spaces. And and it's there, you know. I've noticed um, sometimes there's more resistance in those spaces than if I'm in a, a traditional, whatever that might mean, yoga space, um, where we are practicing and and often people are are um, in a practice of meditation, I'm offering a different kind of meditation or one that resonates and relates to what they already are practicing in a, a room of, of um, you know, board of directors or a foundation. If I'm asking about the heart, which I do, that's, there's like a transition. People are not asking me to, they, they aren't expecting me to lead a mindfulness practice, even though I say I'm going to, and they're certainly not, not thinking I'm going to ask about the heart when they're making decisions about money and staff. And, but I think we need to start with the heart. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, this is what I believe and how I try to try to do my work in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I was earlier trying to um, write a post for social media for an aspect that's happening today, which is Mars opposite Neptune. And one of the descriptions for that aspect is a feeling of overwhelm. Uh, with the immense amount of grief and overwhelmingness in the world. And kind of uh, uh, inability to act or to know which way to act and what mm -hmm. to do. And because it feels like mm -hmm. I can't do anything and no matter what I do, it's not going to be enough or it won't be helpful. And when you were talking, I was thinking about uh, my own journey, um, tr trying to grapple with um, the immensity of, mm -hmm. of, of oppression and the many systems that hold oppression. Uh, and also with the lived experience of being a Leo rising and having Aquarius on my descendant, you know, where I'm moving out into the world. And I feel like I am really in a space of, of learning what it is to just keep coming back to my heart, especially when it is so tempting to move up into my mind to try and figure out how to do something better or figure out what's wrong or strategize about what will be effective. Um, and, and that shift from a doing space into a being space feels very counterintuitive, uh, often in times of, of urgency. And mm -hmm. I think right now there's, there's so much urgency, there's so much tragedy. Yeah. 
when you're in these spaces, you know, in boardrooms or even in yoga classes or even in your own body and with yourself, mm-hmm. um, can you speak to what you notice in the transition and maybe even some some tools around facilitating the transition from a more mental or doing space into a kind of more heartful or being space. What do you feel as an energetic shift? What do you notice in the room or in the the field of the of the people that you're gathering with or in your own self? And I know you've got now two books full of <laughs> meditations and different practices to come into the heart, but in maybe a kind of just like simple gestural uh, kind of way, how do you help yourself keep coming back into your heart or how do you help the people you're with keep coming to their hearts? Mm-hmm. Well, I think for, for me, it's, um, it's, it's difficult to be away from the heart. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm sure there are times when I'm not connected to it deeply. I, I mean, I'm sure of it. And um, I feel so present to it, but that has not always been true. I mean, that is a practice. I think that's come through practice. Um, And I I also, a long time ago, I think this is from being a a social worker. I was a social worker for like 20 years that early on, I realized I can't take care of all of the things. (laughs) I kind of was like, you know, if I, um, I can be aware of as much as I can. I mean, there are things I don't know, um, but I can be aware and I can feel into it and I can sense into it. And there's a limit to what I can do. I mean, I, I think I learned that in the first year, maybe before that, my mom was a special education teacher. So I actually think I learned it from my mother, Clara, watching her do what she could do for the, the students, the people she worked, um, with and, um, there was, there were things she had to let go of because there was only so much she could do. And I actually really appreciate that lesson. I'm not saying we're, we're limited. And, um, part of my practice is prioritizing my own care so I can continue to show up and do what I can do. And so if I'm focused on doing everything, I just won't be able to, to do that. Um, so that kind of like managing expectations, I think, um, helps my heart, although I feel my heart broken all the time and, and overwhelmed. I think it, um, in some ways sort of balances out the desire to like, what do we need to do about this? I'm like, I don't know what we can do about this. Right. Or this is the one thing I can do. I think that's been really helpful for me. Um, and then in groups, I've noticed, you know, when I'm leading a meditation about the heart or really any meditation, especially in a space where people are not necessarily used to the practices um, I offer in skill and action or finding refuge or the ones that just come through that are channeled, um, I'll say, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, I think I'll, I'll tell them this is, this is what I'm going to offer. And it may feel completely uncomfortable and confusing. And I'm going to invite you to breathe, right? I start there. Um, and then about a minute or two in, it sort of depends on the, the group and, and how long I'm leading the practice. Um, but I'll say something about you might notice resistance showing up in your body 
Or as I ask about the heart in your heart, there may be constriction that you're feeling and breathe into that, breathe into that and notice what, what's present and what happens. And what I notice shift because I'm, I've like told people, this is, this is what I'm going to offer. And, you know, people are building, I'm thinking about distress tolerance. Like people are building that, that sort of um, skill of sitting with themselves and, and their breath and the heart. I feel like there's more stillness in this space and quietness, um, even if it's just for a moment. And I think that's powerful because the world is noisy, Mm -hmm. like in all the ways it feels noisy energetically. It feels noisy. It's just noisy. There are sounds, but, um, and there's dissonance, like it's just, there's a lot. And so I, I think that quietness is a gift, even if people, and that moment to be with the heart is a gift, even if people don't recognize it at the time, because Mm -hmm. later people have come back to me and, and said, something about the meditation, right? Or if I'm working with an organization over time, if for some reason I go in and don't start with a meditation, people will ask me about Mm. that, you know? Mm. And so I think if I'm able to work with people over time, they know it's part of the the practice. And I also, I also share something about preparing for, for our gathering or what we're about to do. So I think centering and coming into the heart is a way we prepare for how we want to come into community and be with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we're making budget de- budgetary decisions about a nonprofit or something, right? But let's prepare and transition into the space um, so mm-hmm. we can be present to mm-hmm. what is and be more mm-hmm. intentional about our work. Yeah. Um, in the part in your book where you you share a story about being um, in a predominantly white town in Pennsylvania and getting pulled over for driving while black. Mm -hmm. And, and then you, you kind of go through the play-by-play of your experience and tracking your own sensations and noticing um, your intuition versus uh, your fear. And like, you say that, like I've spent a lot of time training to listen to my intuition and uh, you can parse it out. Um, I'm wondering in your embodied experience in high stakes, high stress situations where there is a potential that the outcome, uh, might not be good. What does it feel like to be in your practice and how do you discern, like, what is the difference between in those kinds of situations, being in a space where you are connecting with your heart and your intuition and your practice, uh, as opposed to not. Yeah, I mean, I think I appreciate this this question. Um, there was, and that people describe this when they're in a crisis. I was watching what was happening, and it was happening to me, right? As it was happening, I was witnessing it, and I was also thinking quickly and trying to make decisions. So the, you know, you know this from reading it. I called the person I knew that had the phone who was in Homedale as well. I called my partner and he stayed on the phone and I said, just listen, like, this is what's happening. I want you to know where I am. He didn't, he didn't know where, I mean, he knew I wasn't in North Carolina, but he didn't know where I was. And so I was like, in, in a way that, I mean, that was my practice, although that pulls me out of the heart. It's like, I have to make a decision right now to try to keep myself as safe as I can, mm-hmm. which, which just became the practice. And I also knew um, that I needed to be calm 
Um, I'm not saying I didn't like that. I wanted to say something to the officer, like who stopped me for, for being black, right? There was no Mm -hmm. traffic violation of any Mm -hmm. sort that happened. And I just knew I can't move too quickly. I can't, um, challenge this person. I didn't feel like I could do that. I thought that would be unsafe. And I was in a place where I wasn't around people that, that knew me. I mean, you know, two people knew I was there. So I also think context matters too. Um, and I've been deeply conditioned and socialized to, to be still, to be clear, to be polite in those situations. Um, not just by my mother socializing me, but also by culture and also by all the brown and black folks we've lost because of police brutality um, and, and the people we've lost for being who they are, for just being who they are. Um, what's interesting about that is there was a video of it, which I didn't watch, um, but Emily, the person who's in the story and in, in this chapter and Finding Refuge, who's a white-bodied um, female-identified person who came, this is the person I called, she watched the video and, and she called me and said, you were so still and so calm and so like stoic, I think in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't surprised she said that because I know I can, I can do that. Like there's a crisis happening right now and I'm going to do what I need to do to survive. Right. Not that I have control over that. Um, but it was interesting to hear her reflection, like her witnessing me in that process after I'd witnessed myself in that process, but not through a video. Right. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you were answering the officer's questions and you were not, not reacting. And she was, meanwhile, she was angry at the officer and, and questioning and doing all these things I didn't feel like I could do. And so I know my practice of breathing, right. And being with the heart and also strategizing both were happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was totally calling on my ancestors as well to be like, keep me safe. You know, I was, I kept saying that to myself and I, there was a part in that experience where the officer wanted me to open the glove compartment to, I was in a rental car to um, get the registration or something out of it. And I, I started to move and then I stopped and said, you do it. Like there was a, there was a little challenge of like, I'm not doing this. I mean, I did set a boundary, which I think was part of the, the practice too, and came from breathing and being strategic and, and being with the heart and being embodied, like actually no, if you want to look in the glove compartment, you can, but I'm not. And I'm, I'm not surprised I did that. It's interesting to me that I did that um, because I wasn't thinking I was just acting, but I know practice grounded me. If I didn't like have a practice, I, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, my practice kept me still enough um, to move through that situation and to um, stay grounded. I'm not going to say and still be here because anything could have happened. I mean, things happen every day, all the time, but my practice helped me. Um, and after we left, I like burst into tears. So my nervous system was completely overstimulated. It was in crisis. My reptilian brain was up and operate, you know, like all of it was happening, but none of that came out in the interaction with the officer. Yeah. It came out right after where I could not calm myself down. Um, And then I went back to the breath and cried a lot and went to the water and did all of these things to reground myself. Mm. Yeah, when I was reading that uh, section in your book, I was 
thinking to myself how many tools of mindfulness have to be learned intrinsically um, by folks who are living at the margins of society, who are facing danger and threat constantly. That um, kind of just what you were saying, like this learned way of coming into calmness, of being still, of you know tracking uh, in order to respond, not react, because that could be the difference of mm-hmm. um, you know one outcome versus another. And uh, and then um, a- after that, you know, that experience, you continue to talk about the several weeks following and kind of feeling the somatic and psychosomatic fallout of that experience manifesting as illness and fatigue and uh, depression and recognizing in, in your experience, again, this piece of collective grief and, and trauma that your trauma um, in your body was also part of a larger trauma of black and brown bodies in the world. And so as a white bodied person reading that, you know, I'm struck with uh, the, the myriad of experiences I've had in meditation and yoga spaces where we do meditations to connect with our hearts, right? And there's this kind of ah, like opening and sometimes a, a very blissful kind of feeling that, that can get accessed. And as a person who's really interested in social justice and someone who's like gone to find it and then finding teachers such as yourself, um, for me, it feels like, oh, the real heart work is accessing what is uh, keeping us from being in our hearts, um, mm-hmm. which which isn't that state of bliss and, and connectivity. Like that's, right. that's the inherent state and what's keeping us from that um, are, is centuries deep momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering if you would be willing to, to speak to the complexity and the layers that, um, that you're holding all the time as a facilitator in mixed spaces. Um, you obviously hold uh, a, a fair amount of, of class or ability privilege in your body as well. And so mm-hmm. I know that you're holding space for many spectrums and layers of experience. When you invite people to tune in with their bodies or with their hearts or with grief, um, what do you think is possible you know, in, in mixed spaces or even in um, affinity groups, you know, when there's such incredible distance between experiences, what do you hope for? What do you, what do you think can emerge? Yeah, I'm glad that we're talking about this because what I've noticed over the last year, maybe a little over a year in mixed spaces on Zoom because I haven't been in physical space with, with people, um, mixed spaces with many identities and because a lot of my work is centered around Um, anti-racism practice, usually I'll lead with race. So often these spaces are are a skill in action workshop or or, uh, finding refuge or just a a facilitation or dismantling racism training um, or space. And so they're mixed racially. And what I've noticed is that Black, Indigenous, and people of color are more and more exhausted. And white-bodied people are in these spaces are feeling the urgency in a different way, are feeling motivated, are feeling curious, are being in in large part open to what is being offered. And um, those two things don't really go go well together. You know, like this exhaustion and fatigue and racial trauma met with 
um, openness and what do I do? And, um, and I don't mean that white body people are questioning BIPOC people in these spaces, but like, um, met with this, like, yes, I need to do something now. It's really intense and it's mm-hmm. become more intense. I don't know if other people who hold space are noticing this, but it's definitely more intense than I've ever felt. And maybe some of it's because we're not in physical space with each other. I don't know if that, I mean, I think it would change in some ways because relationally and with our nervous systems and co-regulating, like something would shift in space, physical space together. And I still think this theme would be present um, of exhaustion colliding with um, curiosity and and urgency and openness. And so I've named that, I've just started to name that in in mixed spaces. Um, And at the beginning, I've named it in in a way for a long time about the lived experience that people are having versus learning about something, but not actually um, living on the receiving end, for example, of, of racism. I'm experiencing racism all the time in a white supremacy culture and, and white body people are living in a white supremacy culture and also benefiting from a white supremacy culture and learning how to dismantle it, those white bodied folks who are interested in that. Right, but but are still white bodied and benefit from that whiteness in a way that BIPOC people do not. So I've talked about that for a long time and um, have started to just more explicitly name um, this exhaustion and how people may be showing up. And what I met with openness and urgency and and an awareness of being implicated in, in a system of white supremacy, for example, white bodied people being able to name that. Um, what I what I hope emerges from these these spaces um, is in response to that tool of lived learned and the reality of what may be playing out in the space, the dynamics that are present in the space that we're not having the same experience. What I what I hope is that we can we can meet each other somewhere in that. Um, because what I fear and what I have witnessed is and many people are talking about this and have been for a long time. What I fear is that um, I've seen BIPOC people want to replicate the system, the strategies, white supremacy employees in those spaces, like to Mm -hmm. silence white people, to shut them down, to um, tell them that they're not worthy or what they're saying is it. And, and I, I, I get it in the sense of I understand what's happening in the cultural, I, I get it. And I also don't think that's the way we're going to heal. I just, that's like an impasse. We can't meet each other there. What do do we do? Um, And so I, what I would like is for us to meet each other and not as so many people have named and written about um, not use these, these same tools as these systems of oppression and expect liberation to happen because it, it won't. Um, so how can the white body person meet my exhaustion and give me space to rest or give me space to be in that or give me space to mourn? And how can I actually um, show up and um, meet them in their in their space of wanting to do something about dismantling racism, which is what I've asked white body people to do? You know, so even with that awareness that BIPOC people are like, you need to dismantle this system. There's no, you're not doing it fast enough and we have no time for your learning. And I, I mean, I totally get it. I'm not even, there's no judgment about this. It's just like, yes. And how do we meet each other in our humanity? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's the pathway forward. Um, not that we all have to show up in the same way and do the same work because I also am in affinity spaces as well. I also see that a similar dynamic though, 
because of the racial hierarchy, because of oppression Olympics, all of that, where I've seen deep connection in those spaces and I've also seen, seen disconnection because of um, folks feeling like, well, your oppression is not as bad as mine or people who are higher up in the racial hierarchy, not, not necessarily feeling like they have a space so they have to shrink themselves. I mean, it's complex, like so much to hold and respond to and I'm learning all of the time. And my practice has been to name, here are the things going on. I don't know what to do about them or I do, but you know, sometimes I don't and I'm transparent about it. Yeah. And let's just be with what's, what's alive in the space because what's alive in these spaces is alive everywhere. It's like, it's just a representation of what's going on everywhere. And if we can figure out some way to, to be with each other in this, I think we have some, some chance at shifting what's going on outside of the Zoom rooms I'm in with people, right? That we can actually transform beyond um, the spaces that, that I hold. So that was a long answer, but there's a, there's a lot in there. Mm, yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate your answer so much. It's making me think about um, working with movement repatterning in people's bodies, which is a practice I've had for a long time. And um, one of the kind of like foundational pieces that I've come back to in that practice for myself is that you move towards the dominant pattern first. And before you try and change someone and make them do something different, even if it's going to be way better and you know feel better for them, um, you have to move into the dominant pattern so that they can really feel the impact mm -hmm. of that pattern and then from an internal space start to unwind it. And if you don't do that and you try and give them a counter movement, um, even if their muscles learn it, their physiology will never integrate it as a kind of reflex and, and a, a more automatic way of being. And so when you're talking about that, um, the, the feeling that I have is a feeling that I've had a lot, um, which is like a yearning to have unlimited time and space for everyone to just be and to mm -hmm. allow all of these feelings to happen um, and to just be with them, right? And to not do something Mm -hmm. uh, with them, but to be able to observe them together and actually feel what they are as an embodied state. Obviously right. we're inside of them in the, in the structural space or the cultural body all of the time. Um, what do you think about that? Like it, it almost feels like a little bit dangerous saying it in my white body to say like, it might, we might need to move more into the pattern to actually feel it. And I certainly don't don't want that as a cultural experience, but I also feel like that's what's happening in some ways, that mm -hmm. politics are becoming more extreme, that things are becoming more and more stark, and that part of the urgency that a lot of white folks are starting to feel is because they're starting to feel. Right, right, that's right. Yeah, I think it's um, it, what you named resonates about the, the more dominant pattern being first, like, so people can feel into that because um, superiority, you know, we talked about this earlier, has really limited our, our, has cut us off from feelings, right, and being embodied and remembering we're embodied. So, and I can, I can also, um, I can see how, I don't know if it would be dangerous. That feels like a strong word. I'm not actually sure because I think we're acting these things out all the time anyway. So um, 
I think it would be interesting though to name that as a part of what we might experience is um, mm-hmm. if we're talking about white-bodied folks and BIPOC people, white-bodied people being in this practice of understanding how white supremacy lives inside them, feeling it, noticing the patterns of white supremacy. And maybe that happens in white affinity group. I don't know. And um, I think for BIPOC folks, for us thinking about um, the internalized racial oppression um, and conditioning around that and socialization, because that there's some healing that needs to happen and some undoing and some repair that needs to happen with that as well. It's sort of like affinity spaces for internalized white supremacy and, and moving into that dominant pattern and to understand it and feel it and feel the grief associated with that and the history of trauma that's led white bodied people to operate in this white supremacy system to create it mm-hmm. and, and BIPOC people with internalized racial um, oppression or inferiority. I think that would be interesting. And then coming together to talk about mm-hmm. it or be, or breathe together. I'm not sure, brainstorming. Um, it makes sense. And, and what we know is that when, I mean, this is like implicit bias, people um, default when there's a crisis, when there's pressure, when there's a deadline, like that is where people are gonna go to their internalized, um, their patterns that are related to internalized superiority based on their identity. Mm-hmm. Like. Mm-hmm or to their prejudices, right? Or to the conditioning they've received from dominant culture about what it means to be them and, and who other people are, right? And what it Or what it to takes be. to survive. Right, that too. I mean, that is such, it's so core to this. Yeah. Why we're here, people's beliefs around what it takes yep. to survive or what they've had to do to survive. It's, it's there's no, there, it's both, I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's, it's really deep to think about that. And it makes sense to me that people would practice that before being able to learn a new pattern and way of being. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well, I mean, I do think, I feel like it is this hard work, you know, of um, bef- if we're not going to do spiritual bypassing, right? Like hard work right. to just float over things. There is so much that needs to be felt in order mm-hmm. to really get into, into the heart and into the connection. And and again, I mean, I, I so love and respect um, how you build bridges between the personal and the transpersonal, because I feel like your work allows enough spaciousness for folks to feel the ways that they are implicated and embodying these patterns without needing to take, um, you know, to feel that it's their fault, you know, mm-hmm. which I think, or, or their responsibility to fix, you know, that mm-hmm. it's like, we're, we're all kind of born into it. It's nobody's fault and it's everybody's responsibility. Right. right. Um, and, and in your books, uh, you illustrate such profound somatic examples of the personal and the transpersonal, uh, one of which I've heard you speak to a number of times, which is just um, that oppression takes the breath away. Mm-hmm. And this, this chorus um, of response to state and police violence and also to the effects of environmental and economic injustice uh, that black and brown bodies literally have less access to or, or capacity often for a full breath. Um, And I'm wondering if you would be, if you would be willing to to read this part um, of your book where you talk about your mother's spinal condition. The disregard of my concerns and my mother's needs occurred because of what white supremacy and oppression strip away from us. 
our ability to connect to ourselves and recognize our own humanity and divinity, the divinity that each one of us embodies. This is a divinity we embody, even as we are encouraged to lose our connection with other sentient beings. When one loses connection with oneself, it is difficult to see the humanity in others. It is a challenge to digest and process the grief that arises from being severed from our collective innate divinity, humanity, and wholeness. It becomes impossible to interrupt patterns of violence, loss, dominance, and harm, behaviors that led my mother being uncared for, led to my mother being uncared for. I sat in the space of watching my familial root, my mother, face death, as my country played a game of risk with humanity itself through oppressive policies and practices, horrific violence and cultural genocide. The trauma of watching my mother's body and the institution of medicine fail her, coupled with seeing our spy spinning world at war, the uninterrupted pattern of black and brown bodies and souls murdered, women being stripped of the power to have control over their bodies, and a president who seems to have a death wish for us all, while those of us who aren't cis, white, straight, and male citizens overwhelm my system, the heartbreak from the trauma of watching a body with an inflamed root while living in a country with an infection at its root at the base of how we came to be challenged my capacity to remain open-hearted and induced a conjuring of the deepest expression of my spiritual practice thus far. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for asking me to read it. I went back to that this morning because um, I woke up and immediately read the news, which is something that I don't always allow myself to do in the morning. And mm -hmm. today I did. Um, and so we're recording on September 2nd. The last several weeks, it's felt like it just keeps being more on top of more. There's Afghanistan, fires, floods, pandemic variants. Um, and the news this morning was an article on uh, a study on, on the racial wealth gap in the U.S. saying that uh, Black children have one cent to every dollar that a white child will have. Um, in the U.S. And then yesterday uh, in Texas, they passed several pieces of legislation in one day, um, one of which made it nearly impossible for women to access abortion and threatens anyone who might assist them with massive financial penalties and no legal recourse. And then at the same time, uh, voting rights restrictions were passed and Texas authorized individuals to carry guns without licenses or background checks or firearms training. Um, so I came back to this paragraph today because I was feeling in my body uh, a, a kind of intense shutdown and the overwhelm of, of grief and panic and rage. Um, and this feeling, this knowing that it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. And that as these oppressive systems are in their death throes that they're, you know, they're grasping for life. So they're becoming even more extreme. And at the same time, I know that there are new systems emerging and, and coming up in spaces where um, we are connecting with one another and more intimate and, and even, um, yeah, I, I want to say underground, but, um, you know, out, out of uh, the public sphere, um, new systems are emerging. And I'm wondering if you can 
speak from your lens as an intuitive and a um, you know highly spiritual and heart-centered person and a healer, as well as your lens as an activist uh, to what you feel as the spiritual imperative of this time. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, so there are a couple of thoughts that I have. Um, and, and one is, it's not a direct answer to your question, but I will answer. Um, what came to mind first is the Bhagavad Gita, which you know is such an important text. Um, I, I go to it all of the time and I think it's chapter six, um, but I'm not sure. But in, in that chapter, Krishna, who's guiding Arjuna, the warrior, Krishna's God, um, basically talks about a dharma so he talks about dharma throughout to to arjuna to say like duty that's what it's translated to in the bhagavad gita although it means um, different things in, in different contexts and then he talks about a dharma and krishna says like when too much a dharma builds up which is like all the things you just named um, then i will come and clear away what needs to be shed and then more adharma will build up. And I keep going back to it because um, it struck me. It resonated. I haven't, I didn't like describe what I believed in that way prior to, to reading it, but it it um it just landed when I when I read it again. Like and and I know people may have different beliefs here, but in a way I think it sort of helped me feel more settled about what's going on even though everything's unsettled um and it helped me make meaning of what's happening and i think you're right that the systems that are in their death throes right now are trying to cling on more tightly like that is that is what we understand i mean happens like that's the cycle um and what you said about you know new systems emerging too so it's it's the, the death throes are happening and people are doing really deep work um, in response to all of the suffering and because we don't want to continue to suffer and we don't want to continue to create suffering for others. So I think um, part of what we can do right now, and this does feel like this in my mind, spiritual imperative, what we can remember is something that I said earlier about remembering I'm spirit and I'm in a body, but I'm also bigger than my body. This helps me all the time continue to show up and do the work that I can do and need to do in the world. Um, that my experience is much bigger than this moment and all, all of the news that you read this morning, and it is the news that you read this morning. You know, it's like, it's that and it's, and it's, there's something else going on. Because when I, when I forget I'm spirit or that there's something else bigger than me and and these new systems are emerging and and that we we're like geniuses we can create something different right we're brilliant we can we can create something different when i forget that i'm in despair and i'm i'm constricted in a way um mm -hmm. versus like actually i'm having a much more expansive experience and something else is possible but the way i do that is by recognizing i'm spirit Someone else may do that by recognizing they're bigger than their bodies, but may not necessarily see themselves as connected to, to spirit. 
I think it, things are urgent. I think things have been urgent. I think we're in dire times, right? Um, as I always say, people are dying. The planet is dying because of people um, and what we do. This feels true to me. And and I don't want to be swallowed by this awareness of, of the suffering. I want to be able to be with it and also remember what is possible and my part in creating what is possible, what, what could be different. Um, so that may have been a roundabout answer, but that's what came came through, that remembering. Because when we forget, that's what dominant culture wants us to do anyways, forget our genius, our brilliance, our ability to create something different, mm-hmm. even as these systems are working on us and working us um, and harming us. Mm-hmm. So that's... That's what I'd say about that. Mm. When you were talking, I was imagining mountains and how the mountain that we can see, you know, on the land might be massive, but the bulk of it is underground and we can't even see it. And that mountains are forming and eroding all the time, very, very slowly over time. And when you said that's what dominant culture wants us to do, it wants us to forget um, our capacity to remember that we're much bigger than our individual selves and um, we're part of a larger momentum. I love your reminder because it feels like a lot of the urgency that comes in with dominant culture is the urgency of the individual. And a lot of the forgetting is that um, not only are we in our spiritual selves much bigger than our bodies, but we in our personalities and our personness are are so much bigger than the self Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and capitalism wants us to think about ourselves as the self you know like you know this right and to forget that so I mean all the systems but that's what came came to mind when you were naming that you know Mm -hmm. buy things to make yourself feel better right Mm -hmm. it is just about the physical body it is just about you know the self and and that's um it's, it's not true. Um, and we're so much bigger. Yeah. And what would happen if we lived into that and remembered? Yeah. Um, okay. So last piece with, with your astrology, um, you also have another major aspect pattern in your chart, uh, that's called a grand trine. You have a grand water trine. Um, and a grand trine is when all three signs of the same element are linked with placements. Um, and so your cancer rising person, you have Saturn and cancer in the first house. Um, in, in its like most exalted expression, uh, Saturn is like a mountain, like it grows slowly mm-hmm. over time. It applies labor and force with repetition and mm-hmm. um in, in that repetition, something gets built slowly over time. And Saturn is considered to be um, uh, afflicted in cancer because it, you know, cancer is the sign that wants bonding and togetherness and Saturn can also be um, isolation and restriction. Um, but you, you have Saturn in, in the first house in cancer. And one thing that, that uh, kind of makes me think about is, some of what we talked about in um, your birth story, you know, and in the ways that you've had to uh, create stability in your own being 
that is mm-hmm. a self-sustaining stability um, uh, because you you weren't, I mean, obviously you were in relationship with the doctors and the nurses at the ICU, but you weren't in relationship to your, uh, who had been your previous source yeah. and connection to life. Um, but then I'm also thinking of the aspect of Saturn that represents labor and cancer as a sign that represents emotion and you as a person who very much in your personness and identity does a huge amount of emotional labor um, and literally is laboring for bonding and recognition of, of mm-hmm. shared connection and, and shared home. Your Saturn is trine uh, with your North node in Scorpio um, and the North node in Scorpio uh, suggests that in this lifetime, you're coming to do transformational work. Like you're coming in as a midwife of uh, some kind of transformative process. And you uh, spoke to this earlier in terms of like a decision that you made. Um, and I'm thinking about the the decisiveness that you had in your own being to come into this body and into this life at this time. And then to follow this thread of, of ancestral resonance in your own spirit and the work that you're doing. And then these two points uh, form a a trine to the very top of your chart, to the heaven of your chart, which is a symbol of um, like, if you're a seed, the top of the chart is the light that's pulling your growth upwards and Mm -hmm. towards it. And the highest object in your chart is actually the lunar apogee, uh, Lilith. And um, one of the ways that I think a lot of people are kind of working with Lilith right now is as a symbol of um, kind of the I don't know if it was the original, but a very foundational, very pivotal separation. Um, And this is the separation between the masculine and feminine, between life and death. Uh, Also the separation between black and white as um, like notions of, you know, Mm -hmm. concepts that are far beyond the actual colors. Um, But Lilith is uh, represented as kind of the original demonized feminine Mm -hmm. and uh, a dark feminine. And her symbol um, over the span of thousands of years has gone through um, a, a transformation of a symbol that at one point represented the continuity of life, the tree of life, um, and then became a symbol of uh, the, the dangers of like, why, you know, wild untamed women who wouldn't listen yeah. to men or something like that. And, um, and now a lot of astrologers, myself included in this group, um, are reclaiming the symbol and and thinking a lot about um, this that you know Lilith as a symbol that can represent uh, embodied eroticism that can represent bodily sovereignty and self ownership um, and that can also I think represent the lived experience and or the desire to commune and be in conversation with folks who've had lived experiences of marginalization and oppression and to do the work of, of um, redress and, and healing to whatever extent healing is possible and transformation mm-hmm. within those stories. And so it's not a surprise to me to see this figure at the top of your chart in Pisces, which is a sign that is boundless, that is constantly emerging, that is the everythingness um, and, and the place where everything comes together. And right now in transit, uh, the, the planet Neptune, is kind of hovering over this space in your chart. And 
I've seen this uh, with clients who are on a spiritual path and, uh, and often who are embodying spiritual presence as leaders in the world, because the, the midheaven is, is also the place of um, public presentation and where you really come into uh, the roles that you hold as a public figure. And so one interpretation for this, you know, is just that these influences and the ways that they are combining are uh, lifting you into a place of prominence and that spirit now is kind of <laughs> pulling your, your body along and is going, okay, like you have to hold this role now. Um, and you, you can't argue with it. You can't resist it. This is the role that is being given to you. Um, and you're doing it so gracefully. And one of the ways that I see you doing this is through um, really beautiful collaboration. And uh, your project with Finding Refuge is so much more than a book. Um, it's a podcast, you have over 20 episodes now. And a few years ago, you produced a summit, which, which I think mm -hmm. was the beginning research of, of this grief work. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, Michelle, what it has been like to step into this role of spiritual leadership for you and to hold this space in communal leadership. You've talked to so many people about grief um, and spirit. What have you learned in this process? Like, has anything surprised you? Are you, um, you know, what, what are you thinking about now in terms of how you feel your, your work evolving or where it's taking you next? Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that with me. I only knew a little bit about my chart. And so thank you for sharing that with me um, and, and doing that labor of reading my chart in preparation for this. Thank you. I appreciate you. Um, you know, when I lived in Portland, I lived there 20, second half of 2017, first half of 2018. Um, and it was a really challenging time and year and I was getting divorced. I moved across the country. I started a new job, although like on the stress test, I have marked many of the things that, you know, push people over <laughs> the edge or, or somewhere. Um, and then I lost people, my father and my grandmother transitioned, um, that year. And, um, I feel like that was, although I think I've been on this journey for, ever since I came in, I think that year was the, um, and skill in action came out. It was looking back, I understand it was the year that was preparing me to be where I'm now. And I'll probably say that about this year later, this year has not been personally traumatic for me other than feeling the world and the heaviness, the world's heaviness that I feel. Um, but I've been pretty lucky and have privilege, like I'm in my home and I've been able to move my work. So I, I recognize that, but I, I do know I'm in this constant state of being prepared for what's next. And Portland really showed me that. Um, and it also reminded me I'm held in some way. And I say this because I trust where I'm being led. And I, I've learned to listen to the signs, to the ancestors, to the, I get a lot of signs from the natural world or dreams. Uh, my grandmother came to me in a dream the other night um, and, and gave me some messages. So I'm listening and I feel like I'm not resisting. I'm like, okay, I need to move to Portland. Okay. I need to move back. All right. I need to listen to this, this work around grief come through and, and, 
and not need and the should, that's not what I mean, but like, okay, this is the next thing. And I'm really glad I'm listening um, because it, it makes this process easier. There's more ease because there's trust, mm-hmm. but that I didn't always listen, right? Like I'm, I was hardheaded for a long time and I probably still am in some ways, but I'm like also in this receptive place of leave me where you want me. And, and I will go and where I've been led has felt deeply aligned and I feel like I'm in integrity and doing what I'm most meant to do. And with that, I'm open to what's next. Um, I mean, I've certainly have things scheduled for a long time with skill and action and I have things happening with Finding Refuge and I'm writing another book right now um, as well. And I'm also wanting to leave some space open. So I'm taking three months off in 2022, which I'm so, this is like never happened. I, I mean, since like school, like when we had summer break or something, but I've, I carved that out, I'm committed to it, I'm doing it. And I think that will give me more information. It will allow me to rest and give me more information about where to go and do some deeper spiritual work. And, and I mean, frankly, like recover because I am holding a lot. Um, I mean, we all are, and I'm like in the work of holding people. So it's, and their emotions and their stuff. And, and it's a lot. So I'm, I'm excited because that will illuminate what is next and what is needed. And um, that was Jasper sneezing. It was so cute. That's uh, <laughs> sneezing. People are wondering what's happening. It's real cute. Although he has something going on. What is happening, buddy? Oh my goodness. Um, he's just affirming. Yes. Three months off. Well, that will, that will be helpful. Um, so, so yeah, I feel, I don't feel, sh- um, I don't feel shy about it and I don't want to shrink myself. I think my, my edge, like growing edge is, is receiving it when people say you're a spiritual teacher or, or you whatever they're telling me I'm doing or how they've been deeply affected. That is my, my growing edge. Um, because I want to be humble, like big time. I want to be humble and there, I can still be humble and receive, but I know it's a thing for me. It's a, it's a practice to listen to people when they're telling me things about what came through me and how it affected them. Because I'm so clear. It's not about me, but it is me creating things, right. That inspire people. So um, that's, that's my edge with this, like moving into this space and, and place of being a spiritual teacher or intuitive or healer, what we have different words to describe this, right. Um, is really receiving it when it's reflected back to me. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like that's really important what you said and, um, yeah, the, the vision that I nurture for myself of like a possible future is this vision of, um, you know, galaxies and constellations where there are lots of stars. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that this is part of what the Leo Aquarius axis is also illuminating um, is, is that each one of us has a lot of brilliance. And when we actually can center that brilliance and give it generously uh, and receive feedback, um, whether that's gratitude and praise and celebration, or whether that's like, hey, uh, this didn't work for me, or did you think about this? You know, that that our brilliance then can become even more vibrant. 
-hmm. um, but that the the universe isn't just one star, right? It's like billions, right. and that there are all kinds of constellations and and relationships between us that support everybody's orbit and place in space. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, before we end, uh, I would love to, first of all, just know if there are any ways that listeners can connect with you or that you'd like to invite people to connect with you in the, in the near future. Yeah. So, um, my website is michellecjohnson.com and it's the best place to see what's going on and connect if you want to practice with me or be in community with me. I have a, a lot of different offerings there. Um, and I also offer intuitive readings and um, intuitive healing sessions and Akashic readings. So there's information there. Um, I'm really, I love um, um, offering Akashic readings and being in that space. Like one of my new favorite things to do. And I get a lot of information from it, from opening in that way. So there are a lot of different ways to connect um, that you can you can find through the website. And then I'm um, on social media, Skill in Action, where a lot of my different events are, but also my, my things from my life and things I want to share and things I'm feeling and what's going on with me for the day, that kind of thing. Um, and through the website, people can email me as well if they want to connect that way. So there are lots of lots of ways and workshops and community gatherings. And I want to offer more grief circles. I'm talking with a colleague right now about about doing that. So so mm -hmm. people can stay tuned about that. Great. Well, I'll list uh, all of those sites and um, access to your books and Instagram mm -hmm. and social media handles in the show notes. Um, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to uh, help us close this space by leading me and, and you and then any of the <laughs> listeners in the future time and space um, into uh, a mindfulness practice. Yes, I would love to. And I, I think I'm going to lead um, the one about the heart or something about the heart, given how much we talked about it. So um, I will invite people to find a way to be, and you can decide if you want to be seated or on your back or side or belly or however you want to be. I invite you to move into a, a posture. And a posture that would feel good in your body right now, where you can feel good in your body, if that's possible. And you can have your eyes closed or open for this practice, and your hands can rest wherever feels comfortable. And I invite you to bring your awareness and attention to the breath.
And begin to feel your inhales and exhales. And as you come into the body and feel the breath, your inhales and exhales, you might begin to deepen your breath, this experience of breathing. The body is breathing. And you might even notice the shape change in your body as you inhale and exhale. And notice the shape the body makes as you find the space between your inhale and exhale exhale and next in breath. And now as you breathe here in the body, I invite you to bring your awareness to your heart space. This might mean bringing your attention to the heart, turning your attention toward the heart, or it might mean placing a hand on your heart or both hands on your heart, you decide. Take a moment here to breathe and sense the heart and touch into the heart as an organ, as a space. Feel the heart's energy and beat. You might even feel the space around your heart. And notice what is present here as you connect with your heart. Perhaps different emotions are present here or sensations that come into the heart space.
If you would like to work with the mantra statement that's offered in Finding Refuge with this meditation, it is, I acknowledge my heart. I acknowledge my heartbeat. I feel my heart. I feel my heartbeat. So acknowledging you have a heart and your heart is beating and feeling into the heart and feeling the heart beat. You can repeat this to yourself if you'd like. I acknowledge my heart, I acknowledge my heart beat. I feel my heart, I feel my heart beat. And you can stay here with your heart for as long as you like. And when you feel ready to move out of the meditation, I invite you to stay with the heart, but to come back into your space. Perhaps taking a moment to blink open your eyes if they're closed to reorient in your space as you feel your heart. Maybe noticing colors, shapes, items, living beings in your space or even physically grounding, touching the body or connecting some part of the body to the ground. Thank you for inviting me to lead a, a practice. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you for that practice and thank you for being here. Thank you for being here and being you and being all the things you are and, and for doing what you do. Thank you for being here with me today and being in conversation and community. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's been wonderful to know you for a couple of years now. And mm -hmm. yeah, I feel really inspired by your work. Yeah, thank you. For more information on Michelle, please visit michellecjohnson.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and networks. You can find more guest episodes at embodiedastrology.com in the listen section. Get your free monthly horoscopes and stay tuned in with the Earth, Skies, and Planets by signing up for one of Embodied Astrology's membership tiers. Find more information at embodiedastrology.com forward slash join.